I wasn't all that surprised when uh, last spring I started opening and looking at the questions you had submitted that you'd like to, for what you'd like to hear a sermon about. I wasn't all that surprised to discover that a number of them related to sexuality and particularly homosexuality. I wasn't surprised, but I was scared to death. And uh, ever since reading those last spring, I've had a lot of uh, sleepless nights and burden and anxiety and trying to think through the best way to address this subject and the best spirit in which to address it. Now, on the one hand, you might say, well, it's not that complicated. The scripture's pretty clear. Just call it and let's go home. And on the other hand, you might say, that's right. Scripture's pretty clear. We just love everybody. Let's call it and let's go home. But as we all know, it's not quite that simple. And in fact, I've come to the conclusion that nothing of any importance, particularly things about the gospel, are simple. They might be clear, but nothing is simple. And we are, this morning, talking about an issue that is very complex. And it has a lot of nuances to it. And quite frankly, to be able to address it fully in the brief time we have this morning is impossible. People write books and books about these kinds of things. And so my my plan this morning is not necessarily to give you some definitive answers, but rather to help us sort of have a mindset about how we approach the issue of sexuality, both for us and for the culture. And I, I'm, my, my sense, my, my, my dream, my idea, is that the, the spirit in which we approach this is, is really the spirit of which Jesus is described by John in the beginning of his gospel. When he says in chapter 1, verse 14, that we have seen the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And to try to live in that tension as we talk about this issue, and quite frankly, let's talk about any issue. To live in this tension of grace and truth. Now, I think it's important to to understand right up front that despite sometimes the impression we give that the sex is a gift of God. It's not bad. David Seaman says that when he was young, and this would have been 60-some, 70 years ago, he, he says that the message the church sent to him as a young person was, sex is bad, sex is bad, sex is bad. And then when he walked out of the church uh, at his wedding, the church now said, okay, now sex is good, sex is good, sex is good. And he said, quite frankly, it was difficult to turn that around. It was difficult to have spent all of my life thinking this is bad, this is something to avoid, this is something that I'm not supposed to do, and now all of a sudden, I am. As it created some, some difficulties for him as he began his marriage. And, and I think that somehow the church has to find a better way to talk about sex than it's just bad, 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 and then all of a sudden, now it's good. And I think we start with the fact that this is a gift of God. In Genesis chapter 2, the passage we read this morning, God creates Adam and Eve for each other. And a part of that creative process is that they will be one flesh. 
They will be united together in the most intimate of ways. And as a part of that, there is children will be produced. One of the purposes is procreation. But even more than that, it is this sense of intimacy. A sense of knowing one another, as the old King James translates the word, when it talks about Adam knew Eve and she became pregnant. And that sense of intimacy with one another. It is a gift of God. Now, we all know why we talk about sex as being bad, is because, like anything, we take this precious gift of God and we twist it. And we skew it. And we get selfish about it. And, and self-centered about it. And we do that with everything, all of God's gifts. And in a way, it really is the definition of sin. And, and we, we come to this, this particular issue and, and we have so skewed it that now we have to keep talking about it in negative terms. And quite frankly, so does Scripture. I mean, you look at the Scripture and the one, one of the things that we see constant in the Scriptures is that... Any sexual activity outside the bond of marriage is condemned. Any sexual activity outside the bond of marriage is condemned. And we find numerous places throughout Scripture, Galatians being one of those that we read a few moments ago, where, we, where Scripture talks about sexual immorality. And sexual immorality is engaging in sexual practice outside of marriage. And that includes, that includes sex among people who, single people, adultery, and it includes homosexuality. Now, scriptures, again, are also very clear about homosexuality. There's some stories of Sodom and Gomorrah and some other places where homosexuality is condemned. And then there are, some, there are four, at least four places in scripture where it is spoken of in a list of sins and things that are contrary to the will and purposes of God. In Exodus 18, Exodus 20, we find both in both of these places, we find lists of a variety of sins, particularly sexual sins. And quite frankly, it's one of those places where you think, I think they've covered everything just about possible. And homosexuality is listed as a part of that. You move on to Romans chapter 1, and you find again, you find also passages of scripture that talks about sexual immorality and talks about homosexuality as being against the design of God. And 1 Timothy 1.10 is the same thing. It, it, is, it is very clear in each of these passages of Scripture that homosexuality is not the plan of God. It is condemned by God and by Scripture. And it's one of the, one of the constants that you find throughout the pages of Scripture. I think the thing that we have to keep in mind, though, is that this is not the ultimate sin. And one of the things that I think we have done in trying to combat what we see rising in the culture around us is to elevate this particular sin to a level that it is far worse than any other sin. And what's intriguing to me is that when you read, for instance, Romans chapter 1, you find a passage of scripture that talks about homosexuality and it says that God gave men over to their shameful lusts and talks about how they are filled with every kind of wickedness. But it goes on to say of evil and greed and depravity. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, 
slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. We don't talk a lot about that one in the same context, do we? They're senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. There's a whole list of sins, including homosexuality. But there are lots of other sins as well. Years ago, Billy Graham was interviewed, uh, was at a a press conference, and someone asked him a question about homosexuality. And he said, the Bible is very clear, homosexuality is sin. But it's not the greatest sin. So when you read the scripture, the greatest sin is idolatry. It is putting anything in our lives in the place of God. He says jealousy is sin. Pride is sin. But we elevate this to a new level. And I I think I know why we do that is because the culture is bombarding us about it. But just because the culture is is bombarding us doesn't mean we have to respond in kind. So I think it's important for us to, to understand that. Joe Bailey wrote an article for Trinity Magazine back in the 70s, and this was an issue that he addressed in one of the articles about homosexuality. And he said, you know, that as he, you know, it's certainly a sin, it's clear about that, but he said when when you read this list in Romans, you find here things like gossip and slander and malice. And he said, I would bet that if you were to do a poll of young people who have rejected Christ and rejected the church, I am almost certain that many more of them would have done that because of backbiting and gossip and slander in the church than of being tempted to homosexuality. And yet, for some reason, we sort of don't make it that big of a deal when we gossip and slander and we do these other things. And so the point is not to say homosexuality is not a big deal. The point is they're all big deals. Sin is sin. It is a rebellion against God. It is choosing a way that is not God's plan for us. And I think we need to to understand that this is, it's it's in a part of all of the ways in which we reject God and sin against God and one another. And I also think it's important to understand that when we talk about homosexuality and talk about actually sexual sin in general, that We're talking about behavior, not inclinations, not orientation, because that's really the same thing as temptation. If someone says, I I really don't have any interest in, in uh, in in a relationship with someone with the opposite sex, my inclination, my orientation is to people of the same sex, well, that's, that's not doing anything about it. I mean, Jesus says, you know, the problem is not that you might be tempted to lust after a woman. The problem is that you do it. The problem is that we, isn't that we are tempted to whatever kinds of sin. The problem is when we actually engage in the sin. And I think we wrestle with that. All, all you have to do is to say, someone says, my inclination is toward same sex. And even if they are not doing anything about it, we start getting real nervous. And, and we start getting, quite frankly, you know what goes through your mind? You start getting judgmental about it. And we start, making, we start making judgments about this particular person because that is their, their temptation. That is their orientation or inclination. But Scripture never says anything about, condemns, never condemns 
the ways we're tempted. In fact, you could make an argument that Scripture says people who are tempted about sin and don't do it are more faithful to God than people who are never tempted to the sin in the first place. We tend to say, if you're tempted, ooh, that's bad. We can't do anything about temptation. That's just the evil one coming at us. It's what we do about it that makes it sin. And so I think we need to to keep that in mind. And I also think it's important for us to remember that there are pre... I think we are preconditioned to certain kinds of sins, certain kinds of struggles. There are things that you wrestle with that I don't. There are things I wrestle with that you don't. There are things that other people we know wrestle with that we don't and things we wrestle with that they don't. This is the problem with with elevating any sin to to a higher level than any other sin is because we can become very judgmental about the things particularly that we don't wrestle with. So if it's not our struggle, we can become quite judgmental very quickly about people who it is a struggle. And I think this is certainly the case when it comes to sexual sins. We have a tendency to say, that's not my struggle, so what's wrong with you people? And we can get very judgmental about it. And we don't take into consideration the fact that I think people are predisposed to certain sins. You, me, everyone. Genetics is a part of it. Studies are proving that over and over again. There is a predisposition genetically. I think the environment in which we're raised has a lot to do with it. What was normal or abnormal? What was I missing? What did I get too much of? Influences play a big role. What are people saying to me? Who are the people I hang out with? What does everybody say is okay to do? I think experiences have a lot to do with it as well. Particularly traumas in our lives. You know, we, we face traumas and, and they, they do something to us and, and we wrestle with those things. And what we sometimes forget, again, saying that sin is worse than this sin, is it's not that we're trying to excuse the sin because we're still all responsible for what we do. But it makes us, I think, more patient, more compassionate. In the same way, we want people to be patient and compassionate with us. I mean, in our struggle, don't we want people to say, you know, let me help you with that, instead of judging us? It's not, again, I'm not saying we don't call sin, sin, and we don't sometimes confront one another, because that's often the loving thing to do. But we do it because we care about each other, not because we're judging each other. And there is a huge difference. So I think it's important for us to remember. And and the thing is, when it comes to people who wrestle with sexual sin, if they're not Christians, first of all, I think it's important for us to remember, we shouldn't expect people who are not Christians to act like Christians. And I think sometimes we do. And if people are Christians, I think we need to... We need to be patient with each other. And remember, we don't know the things that this person has been through. We don't know the struggles that they're dealing with. We don't know how far they have come from where they were to where they are. We don't know how God is at work in their life. And often, 
when we are judgmental towards people, it doesn't draw them to us. It doesn't draw them to Christ. It actually pushes them away. When you think about the the first century Palestine and the the stories we get in the Gospels, I don't get any sense that the, the Pharisees and the religious establishment that are pretty judgmental toward everybody else, I don't get the sense that that is drawing those people to God. On the scene comes Jesus. And Jesus treats them differently. Doesn't condone their sin, but he treats them with compassion and grace and patience and mercy. And people come to him like magnets. So what do we do as the church to address the the sexual ethic that scripture teaches us? How, how How do we communicate that? How do we live that? What's the role of the church in that? I think, I think it's important for us as the church to, to be a, a source, the source, of hope for all of us who are sinners. You know, one of the things that, again, if we say these sins are worse than these sins, and it tends to be theirs versus mine, then are we really creating an atmosphere of hope? At what point do we, do we say we want to develop an atmosphere, a church, a body of believers in which, in which we can love one another and we can exude the fruit of the Spirit to one another and we recognize that we all are in need of Jesus and we have come as far as we have come only because of the grace of God in Christ. And we as a church need to develop that spirit and create that atmosphere in which we love one another and we journey through life with one another and we care about the pain that each other is going through. That we exude the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. That we are loving and patient and gentle and kind and good for each other. David Kenneman said that if you, if you worry that loving someone and serving them is going to mean that you, you are acquiescing to whatever it is they're doing, then you don't really see and understand how Jesus loves. Because Jesus doesn't say to people, look, when you get your act together, come see me. No, he says, look, Come to me. You're weary. You're burdened. You're struggling. Come to me. People didn't say, Jesus hangs out with people who are perfect. Because they've got it all together. He's, they accused him and condemned him because he hung out with people who were way far from that. And somehow, our, the fruit of the Spirit is so evident in us that it draws people to us. And eventually draws them to Christ. And I think that will only happen if as a church we are creating an atmosphere of honesty and openness. A place where we can come and confess our sins and find forgiveness and not judgment. When I think back, when I look back to the 
ancient years of the church, it seems to me, and I could be wrong, but it seems to me that there was a more open spirit in the church. Where people could come and, and they, could, they could say what was going on in their lives. And probably everybody knew anyway, because they were small parishes and small communities and everybody knew each other's business. And they knew what was going on anyway, so it may, didn't make it all that difficult to come and to say, I'm struggling with this. And everyone says, yeah, we know. Just glad you finally admitted it. We need to create an atmosphere like that. And we can't do it in this kind of setting, but in, that's why we have small groups. One of the things I love about the prayer room is we have these walls where people write down prayers and they write down their burdens and their concerns. And I love reading the wall. And I'm always amazed and excited about the honesty of what people write on the wall. I know people writing things on that wall that, quite frankly, I'm thinking, wow, that took a lot of guts to write that. But we all know the times when we have confessed a sin to someone when we have unburdened ourselves about a struggle to someone, we know what happens. We walk away feeling free. As Wesley says in his song, my chains fell off. My heart was free. There is a freedom in confession that we need. But if we don't create an atmosphere where confession is welcomed, where confession is wanted, or it's safe, a sanctuary... Who's going to confess? See, what we've created is an atmosphere of hiddenness. Somehow we have come to believe, or at least we give this, send off this vibe, that if you just deny it long enough, it'll go away. I don't know of anything that just goes away. It actually gets bigger, harder, deeper. One of the, one of the tricks of the evil one is to say, you better keep that to yourself. If anybody ever found that out about you, you'd be dead. But the Holy Spirit is telling us, you need to share that with someone safe. Who are the safe people in our lives? We're creating this kind of atmosphere of sanctuary as the church was intended to be. And that means that we're going to have, we're going to have honest discussions with each other. Because quite frankly, on a lot of these issues, we don't agree with each other. We, do, we may disagree vehemently with each other. But if you have a safe space, if you've created a space of love and compassion, if you've created a space of honesty and transparency, you can have open discussions with each other. As long as we approach those discussions in a spirit of humility and respect. Because now if we come to the discussions saying, I'm here to convince you that you're wrong and I'm right. I don't think anything's going to come out of that. But just more walls. But if we come to the discussion realizing that none of us knows everything, none of us has figured out everything, we may have strong feelings about it, but none of us know it all. And if we come to these discussions and we're willing to listen, even if we disagree, and we're willing to be gentle and kind and patient and compassionate, even when we disagree, then I think progress can be made. We can be the church. We can talk through things. We can learn from each other. We can sharpen each other. We can grow together in this area and all the others. I think it's imperative for us to do that.
And we're back to what I've talked about different times as someone said to me, you know, it's not enough to agree to disagree because that typically means I'm right, you're wrong, and someday you'll be enlightened. That, no, it, it's we, uh, even though we disagree, we love each other and we're committed to each other and we care about each other. And if you hurt, I'm hurting with you. And if you're celebrating, I'm celebrating with you. And I will respect you and I will defend you. And I will love you. And I will love you enough to tell you that I I think this is destroying you. Or I think this is a problem that I see in you. But we earn the right to say those things to people because we invest ourselves in each other. We build relationships with each other by talking things out. By caring about each other. Rick Warren says, "We, we can never win over our enemies. We can only win over our friends. And by that he means... If a person's an enemy and you're trying to argue with them, trying to convince them of something different, all they're going to see you is an enemy. But if you build relationships and you become friends, then you can talk about hard things and maybe some change will take place. I mean, we know what Jesus tells us that we're to do with our enemies. We know we are to love our enemies. And building relationships with one another about the issue of sexuality and everything else means that we invest ourselves in each other. It means we build relationships. We care about each other. We approach our conversations. We approach each other in a spirit of love and humility and grace and truth. The tension of grace and truth. And again, it is not to say that sin doesn't matter, that these issues are not important. It just means we get along with each other. No. But until we care about each other, the conversations aren't going to go anywhere. Until we have relationship, it's just going to be arguing. It's not going to be growing. It's not going to be learning. It's not going to be engaging each other as the body of Christ. No wonder Jesus told his disciples, everybody out there will know that you're my disciples if you love each other. And he didn't say if you agree about everything. He said if you love each other, if you're invested in each other, if you care about each other, even when you do disagree. And I think if we are going to be this kind of church... And we are going to say, this is the biblical sexual ethic. Then we have to help each other live that. Too often, as the church, we've said to people, all right, this is the biblical ethic, now go figure it out. I've got my stuff to do. We can't do that. We have to invest in each other enough to say, I'll love you, I'll support you, I'll help you, I'll care for you, I'll do whatever I need to do to help you live out this ethic that we know is right. That's God's perfect plan for us that leads us to the fullness of being children of God. A couple of issues ago in Christianity Today, Wesley Hill wrote an article that I thought was profound about friendship. He's actually going to be speaking here at the college, I think, in January. And he he says in the article very clearly, he says, I am gay and I'm celibate. I suspect most people who would read that article, as soon as they see I am gay, being celibate just sort of goes off the radar and the judgment starts. But all he's saying is, 
This is my orientation. This is my inclination. But I recognize the biblical sexual ethic, and that means I'm committed to celibacy. But he said, what I need are friendships that are the kind of the kinds of friendships that that build relational intimacy much like a husband and wife have. He said, I need people in my life who know what time my plane lands when I get back from a trip. I need people in my life who who will call when I don't show up when I'm supposed to. I I need people in my life who I I can call and say, I got to tell you about this funny thing that happened at work this week. And also, I want to be the kind of person in relationship with other people who gets called when there's funny things that happen at work or when there's a tragedy that goes on or when we just need somebody to share with. And he said he has a friend who says to him, what I really would love is the kind of relationship with people that when they're sick, I bring them soup. Not just them bringing me soup when I'm sick. He said, I long for the kind of relationship with other single people, with married people. I long for relationships with people that, that are this kind of friendship that are more than just surface, but are really deep with each other. And it means we're going to risk to do that. You risk your time, your privacy. We risk a lot. We give up, just like we do in all the best relationships. He said, we need that. And whether we are people who are single or married, we need that. Because that's how God created us. And it reminds us that even though we have a tendency, particularly in the church, to say that the relational orbit centers around marriage. And we we sort of send the message, the subtle message, that if you're not married, you're just not quite really whole. When we read the scripture, we find that our relationships center around the church. Caring for each other, loving each other. And marriage is awesome and it is a gift of God and we give thanks for it. But some people choose not to be married or don't want to be married. And it doesn't mean we're less than whole. It just means we need the church to help us live and build the kind of relationships that God intended us to have with each other. We need to be that kind of church. And ultimately, we will be that kind of church. We'll be this kind of people. We will create this kind of atmosphere. We will care this way only because of what Christ has done in us. I mean, eventually, like every other issue in our lives, in our world, eventually it all comes back to the cross. The cross is the the greatest measure of truth and grace. Because on the cross, we are clearly, starkly reminded of the reality of our sin and its pain and consequences. And on the cross, we are starkly reminded of the grace of God to do something about it. That's why I love this, what we've got in the prayer room, this cross right in the middle of the second room. Illuminated 
by lights to remind us, it comes back to the cross. It comes back to the cross and what Christ has done for us to redeem us, to set us free, to give us life. We need the cross. It's in the cross that we experience the grace of God. As Paul writes to the the Corinthians or the Romans and says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Not once we got our act together, Christ died for us. Not once we figured out our sin and dealt with it, then Christ died for us. But Christ died for us so we'd be able to figure out our sin and have a means of dealing with it. And it doesn't matter whether our greatest struggle is sexual or something else. The answer is the cross. N.T. Wright said, the answer to all of the evil in the world, theirs and ours is the cross. It is the grace and truth of Jesus. And our call is to be so committed to Christ, so open to him, And to his church, that we can be agents of his grace and truth to each other and to this world that desperately needs Jesus. Father, we pray that you will create this passion, this yearning, this desire in us to live in the tension of grace and truth. And to be this kind of church. As we are reminded, as we stand at the foot of the cross.